Slepsky. Hey everybody, welcome back to Joe on Joe Illustrated. This is issue 35 of G.I. Joe, a real American hero with a comic book. That's right, this is normally our Patreon-exclusive podcast, where we go through every single issue of G.I. Joe, a real American hero in sequential order in painstaking detail, page by page, panel by panel, and break it down for you. And every five issues we like to share with the entire feed. If you're interested in hearing more of this, please go to patreon.com slash Pod and see how you can get access to every single issue of Joe on Joe Illustrated. Now, before we get going, guys, I've got something really cool to share with you this week. And in order to see it, you're going to have to go to Facebook. So please go to Facebook slash Joe and Joe Pod and you can find the page and like it and all that stuff. And I'm going to send a big shout out right now to friend of the show, Philip Barnes. Philip, you know what this is all about. He sent me, based on listening to some old um, older episodes of ours, he was listening and he drew file cards for me and my beautiful wife, Rebecca Slepsky, as our Joe and Joe code name. So we've got full file cards with Rebecca as Toy Latiel, the Cobra cleaning lady. And we've also got a file card in, in with my old name, but it, it takes nothing from this. My uh, name of Deep Dish. And it's got me, uh, they're done in the traditional file card G.I. Joe's format with the explosion behind them. They look amazing. Philip, these are so great. There's even two versions. There's one of Rebecca in a black Cobra outfit, and then there's one of her in a blue Cobra outfit. She's got a plunger, a toilet plunger over her shoulder, and a bottle of Windex in one hand. Uh, And I am bursting off the page with podcast microphones in my hand uh, and a and a, a devilish eye, look in my eye. I, I, these are so fantastic. He sent them to me last month, and I've just been waiting for this uh, public issue of Joe and Joe Illustrated to to spread the word, guys. It's it, they're really great. Let's see. Let's let's read his uh, file card info. The name is Joseph Slepsky. His primary military specialty is mass communications. Secondary military specialty is eighties pop culture intelligence specialist. His birthplace Chicago, Illinois. You'd think his known romance with Toilet Teal would cause his teammates to question his loyalty, but the Joes and Deep Dishes squad trust him with their lives. An amiable, steady, and intelligent leader, his diverse team of experts follow him anywhere. This Joe broadcasts valuable information to troops via the Joe on Joe podcast and connects with fans on major social media sites. Quote, Some say I'm like a Chicago-style pizza, deep, enjoyable, and a little cheesy. I mean, come on. I'd buy the hell out of that action figure. That's amazing. All right, here we go. Cobra Cleaning Lady, code name Toilet Teal. File name is Rebecca Slepsky. Her primary military specialty is cleaning house. Her secondary specialty is reluctant podcaster. <laughs> Birthplace, Los Angeles, California. Brought on board to bolster the Cobra core values of cleanliness, reinforce its brand, and improve troop morale. Toilet Teal is the unsung backbone of Cobra life off the battlefield. In fact, the Cobra soldiers in Springfield, California, sp- schedule Mexican nights every Thursday just so Toilet Teal has a reason to visit them on Friday afternoons. Some say the Baroness can turn heads, but Toy can turn hearts. She's trained in the Mansfield, Wolverine, Diaphragm, and Float Cup Flush Valve Toilet Systems. 
Additional intelligence on this Cobra operative can be found under her, her alias at imdb.com slash nm5263683. That's her IMDb page, Rebecca Wallenzak. Oh, that's hilarious. Quote, Baroness, ha, that chick may be crazy, but I could still mop the floor with her. Mop, get it? Pun, mop. It's just, Philip, these are fantastic. I, I, I appreciate these so much, man. This is so great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank everyone uh, for listening. It's it's honestly, if you guys have never done like things like podcasts or social media stuff, it is this kind of outreach that makes all the hours, all the other stuff worthwhile. So I, I, I love it. So uh, go to our Facebook page. We'll be sharing it on there. I'll throw it out on Twitter and Instagram and stuff. You can find all that at Joe and Joe pod on, on Twitter and Instagram. But we'll make sure it's on it's on Facebook and, and just just love it. Just absolutely love it. And before we get going with the show, remember to check out the Dreamer Comics podcast. It's our friend Omar Spahi's podcast, and he breaks down what it takes to get into the field of comic books. Talks to all, of, all kinds of comic creators, from writers to pencilers to inkers to publishers even. And he knows everybody. He's a publisher himself and a writer himself. He's a very talented guy. And he breaks down the hows and the whys of, you know, getting your uh, getting your comic book together and get it out there. I literally saw him just the other day. Uh, we were down at Long Beach Comic Con, and we were talking podcasts. We were talking plans for our podcasts. So it's it's the it's the uh, what is it the the, the Pentaveret the Pentaveret. It's the great Marvel team up between Joe on Joe and and Dreamer Comics podcast. So check Omar's podcast out, guys. You will not be disappointed. I think that's all for house cleaning this week, unless I can think of anything else. Otherwise, we're going to get right into the show. And you guys, if you if you know what Joe and Joe Illustrated's all about, you know that we're all about looking at what was on the shelf at the time, back in the day. So uh, to kind of put this comic book in context and look at the other comics that were happening when this was on the shelf. So if you've got a love of comic book history or if you, you want to learn more about comic book history, this is a great place to do it. So we call this segment... You were saying, and we start with DC Comics, and this is GI Joe number thirty-five. And GI Joe thirty-five came out in May of nineteen thirty-five. Now, remember, last month, Crisis on Infinite Earths had just started, so of course we get Crisis number two, and we've got uh, over in DC Comics presents Ambush Bug shows up in DC Comics presents number eighty-one. Uh, I'll I'll talk about Ambush Bug every week until he stops showing up. This is like apparently the meat era of Ambush Bug. I've uh, I've got I pretty much, I think I've got every Ambush Bug appearance, literally going back to the early days. And I don't think I ever realized how many they, how, how much they were all grouped into this like 83, 85 era. Like they just, Ambush Bug was everywhere. And then someone got a hold of Giffen and was like, all right, we're done with Ambush Bug, enough. And then they put him away for a good number of years. And then they brought him out again and then they put him away. Uh, Ambush Bug's a, uh, he's an acquired taste, but let's put it this way. I've acquired that taste. I like him quite a bit. Miniseries that we talked about a little bit a few months back called Superman the Secret Years. It wraps up this month. It's issue four. And what was uh, really interesting about this is that they were kind of filling in this, this gap between Superman leaving Smallville and going off to Metropolis. But it was right before the John Byrne Superman reboot, which negated a lot of it. So this series itself, I, I absolutely believe, gets lost in the shuffle, like the historical shuffle. But it is a hundred percent worth picking up because the covers are done by none other than Mister Frank Miller, and they're gorgeous covers. 
the book itself is really good. It doesn't really impact any continuity at all because it would get thrown away almost immediately and, and it never really had much of an impact in that regard. It's written by Bob Rosakis and drawn by Kurt Swan. So, oh, and Kurt Schaffenberger did the arts. So, I mean, you know that's going to be a really well done book. If you guys aren't familiar with Bob Rosakis's stuff, he was the DC answer man in the letter columns for a good number of years. He was uh, DC's answers to Marvel's Mark Grunwald. And he, uh, Rosakis knows everything. In fact, he's still online on Twitter. And if you ever have any question about like this era, uh, 80s, 70s, 80s DC, and frankly, earlier, but he was there during the 70s and the 80s. If you have any question about stuff like that, you ping him on Twitter, you hit him up, and he will get back to you. And he's so great, and he's so gracious with his time and knowledge. I remember I found some random comic book that I could not find a place for, and he knew exactly what it was from. It was like, oh, he just got back to me right away. He's like, oh, this is a promotional comic, blah, 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 blah. It's great. Bob Rosakis, I was always a big fan of, and he's a really solid writer. So check out uh, Superman The Secret Years. I'm not sure if they've ever really reprinted it, but it's not terribly difficult to find on the back issue market. We had two issues of The Flash hit this month, and I have a strong, strong feeling this is to uh, sync the book up with Crisis because Flash is going to die in six months and they needed to have Flash wrapped up and they wanted to get Flash up to issue number 250. So in order to do that, they needed to kind of up the ante. And I, I would bet dollars to donuts. That is why this month we have two issues. We have Flash 345 and Flash 346. It's right in the middle of the trial of the Flash. And uh, I will bet that is why. You know, I love The Flash. I love The Trial of the Flash. Always good stuff. Infinity Inc. 14 is on the shelf. Uh, this is a part of an important run because it is Todd McFarlane's first mainstream comic book work, everybody. But he did about 10 issues or so, or maybe a little more, of uh, Infinity Inc. before his style really started breaking away and becoming the stuff that we knew and loved when he went over to Marvel and like did Hulk and, and Spider-Man. You can see glimpses of it in his early stuff, and that's on Infinity Inc. So this month is Infinity Inc. number 14. It is McFarlane's first issue. I thought it was. I wasn't sure when I was speaking. I don't want to go back and edit it. It absolutely is McFarlane's first issue on Infinity Inc. So that's check that out. It's That, that might run you a little bit more in the back issues, but generally it shouldn't. I, I, I got to imagine the most maybe it's a $10 book, but it, it, it really should. Infinity Inc., a uh, pretty common book, but a really well-done book. And you've got Todd McFarlane. Yeah, I'm in. And that's going to be it for now. DC Comics in May 1985. So let's head on over to Marvel and... You were saying... If you listened last month uh, to actually JoJo Illustrated issue number 34, which technically was just a few days ago, but we call them months because I, I can't differentiate time. So if you're a patron, you heard that last month. In the Marvel books, there were a lot of the star comic book, a lot of number ones for the star comic books. It goes to goes to reason that it was like the launch month for the line. And that month continues because we have one of the greatest books. Fun books to embrace comicdom and is really the start of the Spider-Verse, which is something we're going to be getting in a... Um, in, a, in an animated movie in a couple months, we got, obviously, the giant Spider-Verse crossover about two years ago, where basically Spidey was meeting all these alternate dimensional versions of himself. And this is Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham. I guess you could say any Spider-Man story that appeared in What If was an alternate universe version of Spider-Man. 
But I feel like spiritually, Spider-Ham is any kind of Spider-Verse because it's really just conceptually 180 degrees away from Peter as a human being, and he's an, uh, a pig with spider powers. So if you thought Spider-Pig was first mentioned in uh, Simpsons movie, you were wrong. Spider-Ham, the Peter Porker, the spectacular Spider-Ham, it's, uh, it's a funny animal gag strip with spider-man and spider and and actually not just spider related villains but like farm related villains there was jeremiah J. J. jeremiah jackal there was J. jonah jackal bunsen bunny um jesus the fantastic fur featuring mooster fantastic he was a moose simeon torch he was a gorilla the invisible gorilla of course simeon's sister so that makes sense and I don't know who Thang was. Thang. Ben Grizzly. Okay, so it sounds like he was a bear. And, of course, Forbush Man. Duck Door Doom. He was a duck in Doctor Doom's outfit. This is great. His books are amazing. And that's not the only Star Comic number one this month. This month was also featured, uh, I believe, yeah, here it is. Uh, Ewoks number one from Star Wars. Muppet Babies number one. They'll do the same for you, Muppet Babies. They'll make your dreams come true, everybody. The Get Along Gang, number one, came out this month. Here's a book that I have absolutely no knowledge of. Royal Roy. This apparently is a Richie Rich ripoff book. And boy, does it look terrible. No offense to anybody. Oh my gosh, John D'Agostino. He he inked it. John D'Agostino from G.I. Joe. We love his stuff. Oh, well, hey, listen. Honestly, Marie Severin did the colors. She recently passed. We love her work. A lot of good people work on a lot of books that just go nowhere. And this really seems like a complete rip of Richie Rich. So, Royal Roy, a prince of a boy. Now, in the mainstream Marvel universe, there are some really good books to be on the lookout for. Captain America number three hundred five. This was remember if you remember a few issues back, Cap had finally defeated the Red Skull. And so now he was kind of, they were branching him off and he was trying to fight new villains because, you know, let's, let's move on a little bit and let's try to broaden his uh, universe of bad guys. And this issue is written by the great editor, Mike Carlin. It's drawn by Paul Neary and the cover features Captain Britain on it. The cover is a cool attempt. I would like to see this cover redone in, in the Photoshop era because there's a bright light that's coming off Captain Britain's hands. And in this pre-Photoshop era, it doesn't play as well as I think artistically they, Paul Neary, who is brilliant, I think artistically, I think the way they wanted it to look, it, it's a little harder on the eyes than it probably should be. Uh, Paul Neary, of course, uh, inked Alan Davis for so many years and is a really talented dude. But I primarily bring this book up, not for any of those reasons, but because I love Captain Britain and I love pre-Excalibur appearances of Captain Britain. I think he's... The way they built his character up, technically, he did have a big publishing history in Britain, you know, a la Captain America, but in Britain. But the way they introduced him in the American comics, I think, is the right way to introduce new characters, to seed him. Like, he would show up in Marvel Team-Up, and then here in Captain America, and then in a few other places, and then eventually he gets worked in to the world of the X-Men, you know, via Betsy Braddock, and then all of a sudden, here's a team called Excalibur, and then that's where everyone uh, comes to know and love him after a few years of of kind of drilling him into your subconsciousness. And I, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with Captain Britain. He's great. Hulk 307 is, I believe, continuing the 
crossroads story where Hulk's going from dimension to dimension. But I bring this issue up because it has a strong cover by Mike Magnola and Steve Lee Aloha. Uh, Hulk is like in, cha- in chains. It looks like he's actually broken them. He uh, might even be naked, ladies and gentlemen. But it's just a. It's like it's like the energy is exploding off of him in really strong yellows and reds and oranges, contrasting with his green body. It's a very cool cover. Hulk 307, check that out. Mighty Avengers number 255. This, for my money, was a bit of a down era for the Avengers. Now, I say that, and I'm about to say, but it was written by Roger Stern and drawn by John Buscema, inked by the amazing Tom Palmer. Now, all three of those names are murderers row. I Roger Stern Spider-Man is my favorite stuff of all time. But and I, John Buscema is amazing, and Tom Palmer is a literal legend. For some reason, this era of the Avengers just kind of goes under the radar. It's well done, but there was, I don't know what it was. There was just something about this era that never really pops, even though they do great things like introduce Captain Marvel, um, Monica Rambeau, Captain Marvel, later to be Photon. Uh, eventually, they, they're the they're the book that discovers, along with the Fantastic Four, they discover um, Jean Grey. Uh, it leads up to the really cool uh, assault on Avengers Mansion where the Masters of Evil show up. There's Spider-Man tries to join for real for the first time. There's like there's cool stuff, but it oh uh, first Nebula was introduced, but for some reason it never really gels. Like it does it's not really known as a, as a strong era. But I say all that, and the reason I bring all that up is because this cover is something that wasn't normal for the era. It looks as if it's done in watercolor. It's by Tom Palmer. It's a beautiful cover. It's either watercolor or maybe colored pencil, but it's definitely a different, some type of different artistic overlay than a just a traditional, you know, pen and ink and or pencil and ink and and then color job. It looks like it's either colored pencils or uh, actual paint, and it's it's great. It's a really good looking cover. Check out Avengers two fifty five, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. And give that era a read. There's some great stuff in it. It's just it, it. I don't know why. It just it, it, I. I don't know. There's something about it that always just seems to run below. Maybe you know what? As I'm saying this, I think maybe it's the roster, because they didn't have a lot of the stalwarts on there. Because you had people like Star Fox, Eros, who I like as a character, but he's you know he's no heavy hitter. Instead of Thor, you have Hercules, and Hercules he, even at the time he's never really risen to be major major league triple a status uh the black black knight who again i like but he's not a major you know major character and that and then captain marvel photon they were just introducing her and trying to get her uh build up her audience so you only really have cap and then the wasp was on the team too so maybe that's why maybe that's why and and if you if you extrapolate this thought pattern out over to like what they did over at dc with justice league when they went to the non-heavy hitters in Justice League Detroit, while that didn't hit, so to speak, what they did was they said, let's change the venue. And so they were attempting to like not only just add different dudes, but shift gears. And that shift gears didn't work. But then they did it again with the GIF and Dematis, ha funny stuff. And then that worked. And it was a total tonal shift for what the book was. But they also got away with using the the underused characters. And in this case, if I recall everything correctly, the Avengers really didn't change direction as far as like the things they were doing, where they operated out of, all that stuff. They just literally had different uh, different characters, and the and the characters were mostly B list. And maybe that's why it just, it was missing that element. Maybe you need to combine both the shift in 
uh, core members and then a shift in direction. I don't know. Something to think about. So I think that's all for Marvel Comics. You were saying. And now let's go to the movie theater. And let's see what movies were in the theater in May of 1985. Uh, May 3rd, you've got two fun, fun, okay, three fun movies, quite frankly. Wow, this would have been like, this would have been a murderer's row of kind of bad, kind of fun movies. You've got three movies. Code of Silence with Chuck Norris. It's one of those terrible, probably made by canon films, right? Uh, Gotcha, which is a fun movie i've tried to revisit it and it doesn't really hold up but i remember seeing it a lot when i was a kid and really digging it where anthony edwards uh, and linda fiorentino star anthony edwards is over in paris on a school trip and he accidentally gets mistaken for a spy like a james bond kind of spy and he has to um you know like live in that world and in the u.s he plays a game where you um a game called gotcha where the game is like fake um you could never get away with playing it today quite frankly on campuses but it was like fake um it was like tag but like assassination so he would get assigned someone to assassinate and so when he goes to europe he then has to he falls in 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 line with with actual assassinate uh assassins and stuff there was another movie that was very much like this that i constantly get confused with and it was called tag the assassination game now this game came out in 1982 and this was i think that i feel like it was the same maybe i'm mixing the i think i'm still actually currently mixing them up but i think i liked tag better and this was from 82 tag was um they they would run around with fake plastic suction cup darts and like shoot each other and then of course someone uh starts shooting for real and killing people for real so tag and gotcha, I always mixed them up in my head, and I and I think I the last time I tried to watch gotcha, I wanted to watch tag, and then I was disappointed that it wasn't it, and I didn't turn it off all the way. Anyway, the other movie, Jim Cotta, which is like taking uh, 1984 Olympic. Uh, remember, remember 84. 84 was all about the Olympics and the gymnasts and Mary Lou Retton and all that stuff. Taking that craze and turning it turning it against ninjas, Jim Cotta. Everything else is garbage that month except for get to the final two weeks and you got some amazing movies you actually got four amazing movies may 22nd brewster's million starring the incomparable john candy and richard pryor it's a very 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 cool movie according to wikipedia they've made this movie seven times i mean or at least seven times as of that making of it it's great if you've never seen brewster's million seek it out of course may 22nd we also have rambo first blood part two one of the more confusing titles because the first movie was not called Rambo, but now this one's called Rambo First Blood Part Two. Then the third movie just becomes Rambo Three. Then the next movie becomes uh, John Rambo, and then they did Rambo. So the movie called, or they're doing Rambo now. So the movie called Rambo, the most recent movie that they're going to make, Rambo Part Two is actually the anyway. You know where I'm going with that. But Rambo, come on, it's Rambo. I mean, it invaded American culture, and to this day has meaning. It's it, it, they may not be great movies, but they have absolute cultural significance. On May 22nd, A View to a Kill premiered, which is James Bond. This was uh, a big Bond movie for me when I was a kid. Octopussy was my first one. So this was this this was like the second Bond movie for me that uh, I had anticipation for, that, that I knew was coming out, and I was looking forward to it, and I needed to see it, and I needed to experience it. Glad that it's Roger Moore's last Bond movie. 
because he was a little long in the tooth at this point, but still fantastic. The, the Duran Duran theme song is amazing. The story's funny because you have Christopher Walken, who's always great, playing a, a wacko, um, what is his name, Zorn. The The plot of the movie involves him like blowing up uh, silicon mines because the writers of the movie thought Silicon Valley meant silicate sand that they made microchips out of, not that it was a proverbial Silicon Valley where all the uh, brain power was. So that resulted (laughs) in Zorn trying to monopolize the actual microchip market because there's no other sand in the world. You know, like he was going to blow a nuclear bomb and irradiate the whole valley. I, I don't get it, but it there's some great side pieces in it. So View to a Kill is an absolute classic. And then the next week, May 31st, final movie of May, 85, the movie Fletch. I am not a big fan of Chevy Chase, but this is one of the movies that I can absolutely tolerate him in. Uh, it's well done. Uh, Chevy Chase, Tim Matson, Gene Davis, Joe Don, Joe Don Baker, Mitchell. I guess these are based on really, really popular books. Like, they're fantastic books. Uh, and this is the only one that was made. Kevin Smith talked for years about making uh, a remake or sequel or something like that. And, they, well, they did they did Fletch Lives. But they've tried to reboot. I know Jason Lee was attached to it for a long time. Um, I remember not loving this when it came out. But I think it was just because it was over my head. This is where you get the joke. Uh, what is it? I'm, I'm six foot two, six ten with Afro. Yeah, Chevy Chase is a very specific spot for me when it comes to comedy. If he's doing one thing, I can tolerate it. But when he does other stuff, it's real painful to watch. So that's what was in the movie theater uh, in May of 1985. So now we go over to the actual comic book, G.I. Joe number 35. Egotistical Peacock. That's right, Destro. We start with a amazing cover by Mr. John Byrne. Late 70s, early 80s Marvel, uh, John Byrne was probably the the hottest star going. Maybe Frank Miller was close behind him with his Daredevil stuff, but Byrne branched out. Byrne did more than Miller. Byrne, you know, coming off the the literal number one book of X-Men, you know, he went over to, he launched Alpha Flight. He created uh, the Fantastic Four, um, not created... <laughs> created Alpha Flight, he moved to the Fantastic Four and he reinvigorated the Fantastic Four. Like his run is just considered absolutely legendary. And at the time, he started doing a ton of covers for Marvel. He's a very prolific penciler. He he actually pencils very quickly and with very high quality. A lot of pencilers go quick and the quality drops. His stuff was always really, really good. And this was one of the eras that he was doing a lot of solo covers for books. He did Daredevil. He did Spider-Man. He did a whole bunch of like web of Spider-Man covers. And this was uh, his G- one of his G.I. Joe ones. So we've got the the Dreadnoughts, Buzzer Ripper Torch. They're uh, riding on their motorcycles. There's nice, um, you can see the symmetry of their, their wheels. It's like just perfectly lined up on the bottom of the page. They're all, they've all got their toy-specific gun that is being pointed forward. It's funny, the Torch has what's obviously some kind of flamethrower device, Um you know, it's cut off a little bit towards the end, but you could see that it's got the flame cowl around it. And Buzzer, you could see that he's got his uh, the chainsaw on his gun. And for Ripper, where you would normally see the um, like the tin can blade, it's actually covered by torch. It's it's an odd choice. I feel like there there would have there should have been a little bit of editorial. I don't know, like 
just shift it a little bit or something. I don't know. Like maybe point it down. Like if you point it down it and at, listen, hey guys, listen, I am not here to tell John Byrne how to draw. I just find it odd that you that when it comes to the stuff there, everything's very toy centric and identified by the toy, and you get to his and it's and it's not on the cover. I am not here to correct John Byrne. Here's what's an awesome uh, use on the cover is the background is filled in with basically Kirby crackle. Love that. Love seeing that. It's probably as close as we're going to get to seeing a Jack Kirby on G.I. Joe. Yeah. So for a pretty basic, simple cover, it it's iconic. It totally stands out. I think the 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 use of the circle imagery on the bottom is one of the big reasons why it just takes up a lot of that a lot of that page and gives a lot of movement to just three dudes standing there yelling at yelling at nothing. Yo, Joe! Stan Lee presents Dread Knocks on the Loose. Script by Larry Hama. Pencils by we've got a quartet here, guys. Rod Wiggum, Mark Bright, Bob Camp, and Larry Hama. Andy Mushinsky and Mike Esposito on inks, Rick Parker letters, George Russo's colors, Denny O'Neill editing, and Jim Shooter editing in chief. So now we've got four guys doing the pencils, and this is important. So I am not sure exactly who did everything, but I've got some uh, pretty good guesses on most of the pages. And what I'm thinking, it seems like uh, Wiggum and Bright did the majority of the lifting and there's a couple pages that it might be Bob Camp and Larry working together because they have similar looks uh, and maybe like Larry doing layouts and Bob coming in to, to finish him up I'm not exactly sure but these first couple pages are definitely Rod Wingham and he brings that nice uh, that nice hyper real look to the book and in and over in general actually there's for having four different guys work on the penciling there's a lot of great continuity here so it makes actually it makes me think maybe Larry did like loose layouts on the whole thing uh, to try to kind of tighten everything up. Also, we, we shouldn't go much further without pointing out that this is kind of a retread issue. This is really just a remake of G.I. Joe number 30, which, funnily enough, was also the last time that we joined you uh, on the main Joe and Joe Illustrated feed. So this is uh, uh, serendipitous, to be sure. But in that issue, the the Dreadnoughts, if you guys remember, the Dreadnoughts uh, in, invaded McGuire Air Force Base and they tore up the the airplanes until the Joes were alerted and they showed up and, and sabotaged and all that stuff. And just broad stroke the plot that happens here, that's pretty much exactly what happens in this issue. As far as the the hows and the whys, I don't know. I don't I don't know if I, I have enough to, to estimate a guess at, but it does strike me going through it like this, you know, uh, page by page breakdown stuff. It just does strike me as odd that it's pretty much the same plot and that there's four guys that help put it together. Usually when you have multiple um, pencilers like that, that means there might have been some delay or, um, you know, a breakdown in the scheduling or something like that. So. There is what's cool in here, and that's absolutely not a retread. Is there is some great character stuff, and there's some really cool plot character moments that that advance the whole, uh, larger narrative. So for that, we absolutely respect it and dig it. And it is a fun issue. It's a fun concept. I think any chance you get to watch the Dreadnoughts just completely destroy things and make asses of themselves, I think you should always take it. So it opens with uh, the three Dreadnoughts, Buzzer, Ripper, Torch. They're standing over uh, Zartan's brand new motorcycle and they're they're they think they shouldn't even be touching it it's got all kinds of electronic gizmos and doodads it's super special let's leave it alone Yo, Joe! but buzzer it take kind of takes the uh, precocious lead and and basically calls the other guys out uh, as 
you know, they're chicken. Like, what, what do you think? What's Zartan going to do to him? And, uh, you know, he can't see through walls. And he says, let's take Zartan's bike out for a ride. And uh, we get illustrated on this page that Zartan, it's kind of a tutorial on how Zartan does what he does. He's got, um, it, let's see, it says here, advanced form of holography, 3D projection that works without the funny glasses. So he may be a genius with laser optics, but he's no sorcerer. So his both his suit and his vehicles and his cabin, they just project these 3D holograms. And that's what makes people think he can look like someone else or change colors, etc., so on and so forth. Um, it's funny, the change color thing happens. Uh, Torch at the end, uh, when, when Ripper says, I don't like this one bit, Torch says, what's our thing going to do about it? Change color, which is a, a totally taking a shot or having fun with the fact that, that the action figure actually did change color. I do want to say Zartan is a complete master of disguise. He absolutely is. He's, you know, he can do it traditionally with the face and the masks and stuff. Um, but you know, he's, he's stepped up his game and, uh, this van that the, uh, motorcycle morphs into just throwing a, here's a little plug out there. It looks just like a adventure van from golden apple books available in stores right now today. Check it out. And then one more final thing before we leave this page. Um, I've been noticing uh, in, in a lot of, I've been read I read a lot of comics. And, and one of the, the kind of page layout designs that I've noticed lately that I'm really kind of fascinated with and I love when I see it is happening on this page. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for it later on too. But however many panels are on the page and whatever layout they are, the first panel they do a lot of detail in the background and the last panel or the last row or kind of like the end of the page, there's a lot of detail in the background to kind of give it a place of setting. But the panels in the middle, you can get away with not doing it because it's like that first panel works as your establishing shot in a movie saying, here they are, they're sitting in their living room. Now we can go in for more close-ups and more uh, medium shots, but we don't have to worry about drawing the detail of what's in the distance because we've already established that in the first panel. So on this page, you got some, uh, while it's not a wide shot per se, but there is some detail in the background that kind of puts them in a time and a place, or, you know, puts them in a place in these sewers. Then you get no background, no background, very light background in this broad shot of the van. It would look weird if there was no background to, to establish where the floor was. No background again in this final row it's just the light show. Then these last two panels start to bring you back into the background world. So it works like a, um, it's like a detailed, uh, it's like a sandwich, really, with the buns being a higher level of detail, whatever the level is, just a higher level of it to kind of ground your uh, your reading eye. Yo, Joe! I hope you guys check out, uh, check that page out. You'll see what I'm talking about. It happens a few more times in this issue, and I'm going to uh, try to point it out when I see it. So now this next page, this is Mark Bright. Guaranteed this is Mark Bright. I love Mark Bright. He comes back to uh, the Joe book uh, a few years from a few years after this. And uh, so I'm not going to do a full breakdown of his work for this issue, like a, of, of an intro of him. Just I'm just going to acknowledge that I absolutely adore Mark Bright's pencils. And I loved his work on uh, Green Lantern Emerald Dawn. Uh, his, obviously his G.I. Joe stuff's great. He did like that, was it the Snake Eyes trilogy? 
the one when um, Snake Eyes gets his face rescarred and everything. I got those great Lee Weeks covers, I believe. Um, Mark Bright is uh, Quantum and Woody. Um, he is a, a real, real talent. He did a bunch of um, Black Panther. He's amazing. And I always recognize his stuff by his... He's, he gives his characters kind of a square jaw like face it's like a um like an inverted pentagram kind of face or like a pentagon not pentagram pentagram would be you know like satan but like an inverted pentagon so if you look at um so we got this car it's got to the action here and it's rock and roll and it's clutch and breaker and they're going on vacation now the details of their vacation don't do not make any sense they're riding in um rock and roll's uh, sweet, sweet, sweet car. They talk later on, they talk about, um, what is it? It's a 56 Bel Air Nomad. And it's a lovely car. He's got his surfboards on the roof and all that stuff. And these guys are decked out like they're headed to the beach. The only problem is uh, this, you know, this takes place in New York slash New Jersey. And they claim to be driving to Malibu. That is a cross-country trip of epic proportions, guys. And they're definitely doing that because rock and roll is talking about they're not even going to hit the Rockies if they don't get gas. So they are driving cross country. Maybe it makes sense, actually, because they just recently all got put on uh, leave. So maybe they're actually taking like a big, big leave. But I thought they weren't being put on leave. They were just being put kind of uh, in the administrative positions. So I don't know what's going on. And, and if you were, you, would you really take like cause that's like a four day drive, especially back then? I don't know. I'm just questioning this. Doesn't matter. Love it. Bright's pencils are very clear. They're very. Um, I love it. His 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 acting is great. It's. I'm a fan. If if you're not if you're not familiar with Mark Bright's work, uh, it goes by Mark. His name's Mark Bright. But it goes by Doc Bright. Check it out. His stuff's really really solid. And there's a great uh, character bit that happens on this page. And this is some of the stuff that I think makes uh, Similarity's writing really really great. Is these guys are just stopping for gas, and, and they run into some um, local gas station guy, and, and he's talking about how much he uh, envies the Army guys, and he would he would want to sign up and everything. And you get rock and roll just giving kind of a realistic view of, you know, at least, you know, in Larry's opinion, at least for, in Larry's opinion, for rock and roll, the, the food is bad, the pay is low, and the hours are plain lousy, you know? And, and then later on, it says, uh, like, why discourage him? He says, kids like that join up the same way girls his age get married. They just want to get away from whatever it is that's driving them nuts at home. And the horrible part comes when they find out they were running from themselves. I mean, this is in the middle of G.I. Joe. You get this life lesson, and he's not wrong. This guy, um, he, this guy is, you know, running a, a gas station in the middle of nowhere, and he primarily wants to join just to just to get out of that burg. And sure, that's an opportunity, and that's what you know that the, they sell you on for real. And and for a lot of people, it does work, but. Even for the people that it works out on, you carry your problems with you. So whatever it is about that dead-end berg that was keeping you there, sometimes you do need that outlet of saying, hey, here's an easy way to get out of town, and that works. But you're still going to have to deal with whatever it is about that berg that was holding you down. Does that make sense, guys? I hope that it does. Because I think that's what Larry's speaking to in a, in a broader way. And I love it. I absolutely love that this is in the issue of G.I. Joe because it is so true. You could enlist in the army. You could take a job overseas. You could do whatever. 
But if you keep that small town mentality or not even small town, but just whatever it is about the town you're from mentality. And if that's not what you're looking to change, then you're never going to change. It's great stuff. Yo, Joe! So now we check on the high drama of uh, Cobra. So now we're at Cobra headquarters in Springfield and uh, the Baroness and Major Blood are are walking through the halls and, and they, they come across Zartan who is um, knocking on a door and the door's got a big sign that says the commander is indisposed. We also get the Baroness explaining why it's okay for Major Blood to be walking around. This page is definitely not Mark Bright. I don't think this is Rod Wiggum. So I have a feeling this is Larry Hama and Bob Camp. It might just be Bob Camp. Um, but this is definitely the third artist working. This is not, I, I would bet anything that this is not Rod Wiggum. This just doesn't feel like Rod Wiggum. But Baroness and Major Blood chase, chase Zartan off. They apparently know that the Dreadnought stole his motorcycle, and so he's very upset with everybody. It's kind of like, a, I mean, we've said before that the, the Cobra is like the, uh, like the high drama of uh, like Shakespearean high drama. It's also like high school. Like they're just making fun of him because someone stole his car. Yo, Joe! This is another Mark Bright page. So it seems like Mark Bright was doing uh, the guys in the car. And Rod Wiggum might have been doing the Dreadnought stuff. Not 100% sure on that part. Because the next page, I think, might have been uh, Hama based on... Uh, anyway, we'll get to that. But this is definitely Mark Bright. And we get the guys, that they're cruising on the highway. They're they're enjoying their Yocho Colas. And they're uh, this is a, in a great little moment. Roadblock is... Or rock and roll is... Uh, He's, he's telling them to imagine the contrast of the cool blue Pacific licking your ankles as the sun caresses your shoulders and sweet mel- like and, and the actual in the image is drawn this mirage of the ocean kind of engulfing these guys. And that is all interrupted with this, uh, this, this fun panel in the middle. You don't see the bikers because they didn't see the bikers. You know, they were in this happy place. And the Dreadnoughts drove by and they tore up the side of his car, not knowing that they were Joe's, just they did it just because they're miscreants and creeps and their cars open like a tin can Yo, Joe! so here's ripper and he's now in the lead even though um even though it was it was buzzer that stole the motorcycle but ripper uh hates chevys because he got run off by the road once so he just tore up that car for no good reason and torch is making faces at passerbys including little children now, the face on this little girl, I feel like that feels like a Larry Hama face, um, specifically kind of thinking like from the um, uh, uh, from the origin issues, 25, 26. But I'm not really sure if this is uh, the Hama wig or, or a Wiggum page or a combination of both. I don't all I know is definitely not Mark Bright on this page. And as they're going down the highway, they, they tear up more things. They tear up a, a hay baler truck, then Torch sets it on fire. And they realize that those creeps in the Bel Air are following us. Yo, Joe! And now we're back to Mark Bright, for sure. This page is, uh, is rock and roll is determined to chase after those guys. Uh, so much so that he gets his Bel Air up on two wheels to dodge through traffic. You know, of course, causing accidents and stuff. Plowing through f- flaming bales of hay. And, it's, and they're heading towards a, a tunnel. Right, so it's a just a regular tunnel in the Rockies, possibly in the Rockies, because they they uh, foreshadowed it earlier. Yo, Joe! And now this is not bright, Mark Bright. I'm fairly sure, or if it's Bright, it's definitely with a change of inkers. Because remember, we also had two inkers on here. Because the inks on this page, they're a little heavier. Um, I think this might have been. Yeah, this might be 
some uh yeah this might be mike esposito inking because everything's the lines are all a little bit thicker this truck looks amazing by the way it's a the big zartan hologram truck we know it's a hologram they don't necessarily know it and it's got all kinds of skulls and chains on it it looks a hundred percent like something out of mad max Fury road it's great and it comes plowing out of the tunnel and the guys in order to avoid it they swerve they skid out and they crash their car really good like it is it is legit destroyed now this page feels like rod wiggum for sure and i say that because of the uh the two shots of buzzer uh, in the in the bottom panel when he's lighting the cigar and then when he's uh smoking it sitting on his bike talking about while they're all broken up and trapped in a burning hulk those those feel like the rod wiggum images that we'd see later in the in the in his run because he you know he runs does about like 20 some issues or so on gi joe so this this definitely and the look of basically it is for me it's ripper that tells me this is a rod wiggum page they're happy that they destroyed these guys and killed them they again don't know that they're gi joes but as they drive away, uh, Rock and Roll, who is barely conscious, he sees a license plate, ZTN123. And it's, uh, it's, that's the important, um, it's the lodestone of this issue. Yo, Joe! So now, uh, a few miles back in the same highway, there's another car driving with skulls and bones. And this one is license plate Zartan456. And it's got, here's a, this is a neat synchronicity. And I, I don't, I doubt that they would have interacted with each other. Um, but there is a great um, visual little trick on this page where the, the headlights from this bus, and it's a fake Zartan bus, Zartan's driving it and he's using, using hologram. They're casting these perfect concentric circles on the front of the picture. And because um, like the sun's setting, right? Well, those pics, those circles harken back to this like uh, really large circles that Byrne was using on the cover. So I don't know if he saw the book or, or they saw the cover or whatnot, but, or if there's any, I don't, I, there's probably no real connection at all, but I do think that it's, it's great. It also, there's a lot of vehicles in this. So to the fact that you're going to see a lot of like circle re, circles repeated makes sense too. But uh, a little lady stops the bus and gets picked up by the bus. And the bus driver really has nothing to say to her, but she's quite talkative. Yo, Joe! Now, back at the tunnel, there is all kinds of cops and firemen and ambulances and stuff. And the Joes are legit screwed up. Um, the clutch and breaker. Breaker's hands are burned, which looks crazy. Looks like rock and roll might have have a, a busted or sprained left arm. Clutch's leg looks like it's broken. Uh, and Clutch is babbling. He's talking about a truck from beyond the grave and everything. And then Breaker says, I think the devil himself joined the Teamsters. You know, tell the man whatever you want, rock and roll. And rock and roll is confused because it looks like rock and roll has a serious concussion. So they're all kinds of jacked up. Um, I also, I do believe this is a Mark Bright page, but possibly with that secondary, with the secondary anchor. Uh, reason I'm thinking it's a Mark Bright page is the uh, jawline on the cop, the redheaded cop in that second panel up top that looks like a Mark Bright jawline. Also on the one uh, paramedic that looks like a Mark Bright stuff. So, very cool. But as they're uh, loading them on, the bus drives past them. So we see that that bus driver, quote, whoever he is, unquote, 
is chase going in the same directions as the dreadnoughts. So now the dreadnoughts come across another air force base. And this is what I'm saying with, you know, another, it's another gimmick of just cutting the dreadnoughts loose on an air force base to cause trouble. Like we, we just literally just saw this. So I'm really curious as to what the, uh, kind of what the rationale was on this here. Uh, it says us dreadnoughts do love to bash airplanes, which is a subtle reference to the fact that the last time we saw them, they were doing exactly this. But this time, instead of breaking into the base, they use Zartan's disguise kit to uh, disguise themselves as a two-star general. I get that it would fool the guards as they pull up to the to the light, but I can't imagine that they wouldn't have to stop any car and at least just get an identification. Because you don't know who the general is. You just see, oh, it's a general. Oh, okay. Who's the general? They're like, oh, inside. It's general so-and-so. But they don't. These two dope guards... Or just like anything with two stars on it can go anywhere darn well pleases. Like that is nuts. So just literally, throw, yeah. Anyway, but it's fun. It moves the plot. We'll move on. Yo, Joe! And just like in issue thirty, they pull up to these. Uh, uh, what are they? Are they F fourteen, F fifteens? They're not skyscrapers. Sky strikers this time. But they pull up the F fifteens and they pull out their weaponry and they're going to start just tearing the place up. You know, uh, and, and it's fun. Like, we, I like it. It's fun. But it just it feels just like a rehash for me. So it's not very satisfying. Yo, Joe! Now, on this page, this is uh, Mark Bright. And the, the biggest way that I know it's Mark Bright is the stance that rock and roll is taking in the second panel. Mark Bright uh, draws his characters uh, a lot of a lot of times, not always, but a lot of times. One of his stock poses is um, is them like crouched down. Like they're almost doing a, a squat, like a weightlifting squat. If you look at a lot of Mark Bright's pictures, you see that a lot. I'm specifically, I'm, I'm, I can picture one or two in my head of uh, Green Lantern that he would draw in that pose. But um, that's what he's got uh, rock and roll doing right there. So that definitely seals it that this was Mark Bright, or at least a Mark Bright uh, layout page for sure. Rock and roll is, um, he's putting two and two together because everyone saw this demon truck. And they can't all have seen the demon truck unless it was real. And, and so now he's trying to remember the other thing that he saw. Because remember, he's got the concussion, but he's the only one that saw the license plate. Yo, Joe! So this is just a fun splash page. Looks like Rod Wiggum's work. Um, might be Hama influenced too. But it's literally three giant panels. Each dreadnought gets a gets a, a, a spotlight at them tearing apart an F-15. Yo, Joe! We get a nice overhead shot of, of their destruction of this, a couple different F-15s ripping through the uh, glass cockpit and stuff. And just like in 30, they go too far. In 30 was they they cut the strut on on the uh, the, the Sky Striker, and the Sky Striker literally like collapsed and fell on its own weight, and then it blew up. In this case, uh, Torch is using his flamethrower, and he gets it too close to a fuel line, and it explodes. So it is the exact same. They're foiled by the exact same thing. And then this time is this giant explosion. Alerts the local security, which is exactly what happened last time. But now this time, J.I. Joe is not anywhere close, so it's just regular airport security. And 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 when they pull up to the scene, here's a fun difference: because Buzzer has the uh, Zartan hologram motorcycle, he's makes all three of them, all their vehicles, look like regular military police that were already at this crime scene. And they say, "Hey, they basically they gave them a they went that away kind of thing." So, um, and you, you know that it's then because the license plate on his quote, quote, unquote, army Jeep is ZTN123. Yo, 
Now, as we uh, checking in back on the ambulance where Rock and Roll and the guys were in there, they're they're driving down the highway going to the actual hospital. Uh, while they do that, they they come across this military convoy that is going in the other direction because they're going to respond to the trouble at the airfield. And uh, when they go by, there's a jeep that goes by that says with the license plate ZTN one two three, and that jogs Rock and Roll's memory. So he throws the <laughs> paramedic who's minding his own business. Throws him out of his uh, driver's seat, and he says, hey, you can't do that. And he's like, just try to stop me. And they do a 180 in the ambulance, and now this ambulance is chasing uh, the Dreadnoughts, who in their hologram disguise. Uh, I will say, uh, I'm reading this out of the IDW book, and there's a there's a, a reproduction error or something going on. And I, as I was recording this, I didn't have time to dig out my original copies of this comic. So I don't know what it looked like in the original, but in the, in the uh, IDW Complete Collection, which is what we're reading from, the third panel, which is the panel of the Dreadnoughts and stuff, the whole panel is washed out. It's as if the inks weren't applied to it. Here's the deal. If you guys saw my place, my comics are very well organized, but they are uh, like the, they're in a very heavy box of stacks on top of one another. And it is late at night, so I, I do not want to go out digging up, uh, digging through my comics. But we'll leave this for uh, a mystery for next time. We will get this solved within a couple issues. So I, it looks like this, this uh, panel was reproduced uninked. And I, and I and so we're gonna find out if you guys are if you guys got this far into the podcast and you know shoot me a note we'll ping it out on Twitter. Yo, Joe! These are these are really three strong panels, guys. So it's uh, very widescreen, very bold, very big panels. Uh, speed lines on all of them. I love that the action, like the camera, the camera uh, kind of moves across a little bit. The um, you can see the speed lines shifting where you're at with the axis. And the, uh, the Dreadnoughts realize that they're being chased. And then as they do that, Torch starts to go a little too fast. So he gets out of the range of the hologram. And as they do, we then see that Rock and Roll realizes they are Dreadnoughts. And he uses the only weapon he has at hand, which is an oxygen tank. Yo, Joe! And he throws it right through dead center of the Jeep. So even though there is a hologram of a Jeep, obviously the hologram is not solid, but there is an actual Jeep there. So he hits uh, the middle of the Jeep. Not, I guess there's not a Jeep there. There's a motorcycle in the middle. So the, the oxygen tank hits the motorcycle, which causes uh, Buzzer to spill. And the whole kit and caboodle goes up in flames because sparks fly on E Street and... Uh, you get a Zartan uh, barbecue is what you got. You got a bar- barbecue Zan. A Zartan? Zarbecue? You got a Zarbecue. That's a Zarbecue, everybody. So you get a Zarbecue in the middle of the street with Buzzer thankfully being thrown clear, but he's caught in that explosion pretty good. And Torch and Ripper, they tear off. Yo, Joe! Only to be confronted by that spooky, spooky bus that was heading their way. The driver's still never saying a word. And, uh, the old lady in the front of the window, she's she's quite quite put out. And then the front of the bus opens up and the hologram drops. And we know it wasn't a bus, but what it really was, was a really strangely shaped helicopter that the front opens up and the two motorcycles go flying into it. And it's, of course, piloted by Zartan. And this crazy old lady says, my goodness, I guess things aren't always what they seem to be. And the guy finally, the driver finally speaks, and it's Zartan, and he says, you know, my sentiments exactly. And road rock and roll grabs uh, 
Buzzer. This is leave me in a burning wreck. Why don't you? I ought to blah, blah, blah. So now Buzzer is in G.I. Joe's custody. That's a very exciting uh, development. Yo, Joe! And hours later, when the helicopter lands in Springfield, they are going to kill this old lady because they can't let her know. Uh, they can't her, let her live knowing that where Springfield is. And her clothing, which was a frumpy hat and an overcoat and some glasses, is all that's left of her. She disappeared. She's not on this helicopter before. And Zartan points out, disappearing out of a locked helicopter in flight, that's feet worthy of a ninja master. So who was the old lady? That's the kind of great, 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 great character stuff that happens in this issue. I love it. You get stuff like uh, Buzzer getting kidnapped. You get who's this? Who's masquerading to break into Springfield? That stuff's wonderful and fantastic, and I support it, and I love it. I just, I don't know why we had to get a, 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 I'm curious as to what the choices were behind just doing a plot rehash of tearing up the airfield. Maybe like, oh, it worked well before, let's just do it again. But it seems like it's, it's just five issues later. So, anywho, no complaints, guys. I really dug this issue, and I really dig you listening. So thank you all so very much. Remember, go to joeandjoe.com. Or go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Joe and Joe Pod. Send me an email to joeandjoepod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think of the show. And thanks again for doing that artwork. Philip Barnes, it's so good. Remember, we're going to have it on Facebook. We'll, we'll, we'll put it everywhere we can. And now you, Joe. And Joeing is half the battle.